Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Well, my guest today is Anatoly Pinsky. And today we are going to discuss a charity event that is happening as you may be listening to this episode. We're going to discuss the Ukraine crisis. And I would like to add some a disclaimer for anyone who watching this after, maybe in a month or so, or out in the war has happened, that if you, there is any information that is, might be different from what you hear today, it may be because new information has occurred and that that we don't know everything that happened or we may have some wrong information is because we currently recording and yet we know and know so much that we that we do know before yeah so if there's any information here I apologize but we only know so much after war is turned happening this is turned a historical event for us so we may only know as much as we do right now so i want to have put that as a disclaimer that if i need again there is some information i want to apologize for that and i'm gonna go instead of doing this normal intro i'm gonna go straight to the case and i'm gonna ask you is this a war that putin can afford can afford to lose yeah well thank you very much arlen for having me on um as regards that first question, is, is, this a for, is this a war that Putin can afford to lose? I think that there are a number of ways in which that question can be unpacked. So in some sense, you can say that Putin has already lost quite a bit already because of what's happened to the Russian economy. Right. Um, the, the word afford that you used. I mean, what do we mean when we when we use that term afford? Like, let's say he loses the war, and Volodymyr Zelensky is as has won against Russia. What will ha- would happen to Putin and his regime? Will he be able to continue, or is it is the blow for the loss of this war going to be fatal for his career as a politician, or even even Will be able to really end up like you know Hitler and shoot himself in ever possibly a bunker? Uh, it's it, you, you know Putin isn't a regular politician in in um, uh, he has an enormous uh, repressive apparatus around him. So if he were to say lose the war, and we would have to define what we me- we mean by lose the war. So if he were um, unable to take Kiev, which, uh, w- which analysts are, are, are saying may be the case, although everybody is, use, is qualifying uh, that, that, that 
uh, statement quite a bit. Um, does that mean that he's lost the war? Um, is he, if he's able to demilitarize simply by taking out military installations um, and Ukrainian industry, um, has he won the war or lost the war um, in that case? What, whatever, whatever happens, um, whether he quote unquote wins or he quote unquote loses, he has an enormous repressive apparatus around him that uh, he can use to take out dissent in Russia, which he has been doing for quite some time, even before the war, and which he's continuing to do um, in, the, in the first uh, two and a half, three weeks um, after the war. Um, you know, and even if Putin were to, were to win, um, if winning is defined as, say, um, taking the country, uh, excuse me? If not we can define winning by taking the country and taking Kiev as a price. I, I, I'm not sure, well, I'm not sure how, how, how likely that would be, because even if you were able to get into Kiev, from what I understand, it would be incredibly difficult for her, to, for, for him to make, to hold on to Kiev. So uh, if you were to win, let's just say hypothetically, if he were able to get into Kiev to topple the Ukrainian government, he would then need to maintain um, control over Kiev, and he would need to maintain control over at least some other parts of the country. Uh, and that would be incredibly difficult given the degree of resistance uh, in Ukraine. So there, so there, there is a sort of, small short-term victory, uh, perhaps, but in the long-term, it would be very difficult to maintain. And then at the same time, uh, the, the consequences to the Russian economy and as a result to the Russian state because of sanctions that would persist, uh, if not become uh, more extreme, would be profound. So uh, in, in that sense, winning is, is uh, in, in some sense losing. Which and here I come back to my initial response to your question, which is that um, in some sense he ha he has lost already, which is what makes all of this such a such a scary situation. So let's go back to earlier this year and let me see when these tensions start to rise. As we know, the military exercise with Belarus and and Russia you know, a few months, months ago, a month ago now. So was this when tensions were starting to rise? When did, the, when did NATO and the West realize that Putin might be up to something? Um, well, there's a longer history, of course, to uh, Rus the Russian-Ukrainian conflict and now the Russian-Ukrainian uh, war. Uh, and a, a number of uh, political scientists and policymakers have, uh, have, have suggested that Putin has been up to something for quite some time, um, stretching back to 2008 uh, when, uh, when the, the NATO-Ukraine relationship changed a little bit and perhaps even stretching back further because as we know, as, as, as a number of people have, have said, policymakers in the United States, for example, uh, that Putin, for uh, perhaps for his entire adult life, has hasn't seen Ukraine as a uh, 
as a proper state. Uh, the as, we know, as we know, you wrote, did write an entire essay about this. And yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, and that was that was last summer. So the summer of of of, of 2021. Um, I think that the situation became more serious once um, in sort of the fall of, of 2021. Uh, Russia began massing troops uh, along the uh, Ukrainian, uh, the Russian-Ukrainian border. Uh, and, and that was a clear uh, sign that um, things were moving in a different direction. A lot of people didn't know what direction things were moving in, but, but that's likely the beginning um, uh, of the escalation simply militarily. However, now if you look in hindsight, knowing what we know now and knowing what we began to gather as uh, towards the end of 2021, there's an argument to be made for Putin preparing this kind of military uh, uh, solution uh, to, the, to the problem for an, a number of years. So uh, the Russian opposition and Russian civil society more broadly has really taken a hit over the last two years. Uh, and one could date it back to the beginning of, a, of this, this escalate, escalatory repression to January of 20, uh, uh, January of 2020, um, when Putin uh, announced a refer referendum to the constitution that would allow him to run for two more six-year terms uh, beginning in 2024. Um, that, the refer that referendum was postponed because of COVID. It was supposed to be held in April, but it was postponed and held in June, June July of 2020. Uh, and then sh uh, shortly after that was the attempt on uh, Navalny's life in August 2020. Uh, and then in late... Which famously declined to be a yeah. part of Yeah. That's correct. So now, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Go ahead. And uh, actually, I wanted to ask. Yeah, I'm sorry for interrupting you there, but uh, but uh, I was watching an interview with someone who knew super closely with Putin back in I think in 2006 or 2008. I don't know. He's in this interview as well, and he said that this is not the Putin that he used to work with. Or, or was it just Putin all along that he has, he said, claims that he has changed while in power, but is this the Putin, has, has this been a Putin, real Putin all along, he's just waiting for the right moment, the right time for an invasion? Well, people certainly change over time. Uh, but I think that in, in Putin's case, uh, and Putin's actions have clearly changed over time. But I think there is an argument to be made for a certain amount of continuity in what Putin has been doing. He's made statements to various foreign leaders about how he sees Ukraine. Uh, he's given speeches uh, about how he sees the world geopolitically. And these go back years, uh, many years, decade, uh, over a decade. And, uh, and he has uh, 
And he has gradually, um, given particular circumstances, uh, escalated uh, and become more aggressive with respect to Ukraine. Those circumstances, of course, involve Ukraine moving in a, in a, in a Western uh, direction. So uh, I, 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 I kind of come down on, uh, on the side of continuity uh, in what Putin is doing. However, uh, when, when talking about continuity uh, or talking about sort of any event, the, the, the context in which it happens is, ex- is extremely important. Uh, so I don't want to say that any of this was predestined in, say, 2004. The, con- the, the context changes over time. Um, but I think there's, uh, you can see why, given, given things that Putin uh, said much earlier, so over a decade ago, you can see uh, how it might lead in, in, the, in this direction. And again, I, uh, the response to the next question, because if you if you read Russian history, you know that Crimea kind of makes sense because it's been on and off from, from Ottomans to Russia and then to Ukraine and then now again Russia. So I can understand partly why he wanted Crimea because this, it is kind of like a Russian, have been a part of Russian history but for a long time, but. What what does he really want for Ukraine, and what uh, considering it's a massive? He says that they ethnically should belong to Russia, but is it grain supply as well, or is it is it more than just historical reason that he wants Ukraine? Well, there's certainly a long historical relationship between uh, between Russia and and Ukraine um, that relationship has changed uh, a lot over time. Um, and um, I mean, but in Putin's view, I mean, you mentioned that Crimea ha- is uh, closely tied to Russia. I mean, in Putin's view, um, U- Ukraine um, with Kiev at its center is, has, is as closely, if not, if not more closely tied, tied to Russia. Um, uh, stretching back to the, to the, to the um, ninth, 10th century. So uh, uh, there, there's a, there are there are clear from his perspective. Um, I mean, Ukraine as well as Belarus is part of uh, a Russian nation that includes an Eastern Slavic family uh, uh, of nations. He doesn't he doesn't deny that there is something uh, a kind of collectivity. Uh, that is uh, Ukrainian or a collectivity that is Belarusian, but he sees it as highly subordinate to to Russia and part of this uh, larger family. So there are these there are these historical ta- there are from his perspective there are these historical um, uh, connections. Uh, Ukraine, though, I mean, when when he's talking about Ukraine, it's, it's important it's imp- it's important to remember first of all that that's an incredibly problematic um, argument, but um, but even I think from Putin's if, perspective, if you, if you want to use that argument, you can just use that Italy basically belongs to half of Europe basically belongs to Italy because of the Roman Empire. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean there are there you can in any in any number of contexts you can um, make an argument that would you know make 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 Putin's argument seem as you know problematic as as it is. Um, but Ukraine is a complicated. Is it, the different parts of its uh, of contemporary Ukraine um, 
sort of let's go back to before 2014, um, uh, are it, it's it's a conglomeration of 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 of, um, uh, of what were many different states. Uh, so um, it, it it incorporated after the Second World War uh, parts of uh, what were. Poland in the interwar period that began the, the picture is a little messy because it because that process began in the late 1930s um, in, in 1939 um, but it incorporated parts of uh, Poland parts of Romania and a very small part and I think this is often forgotten a very small part even of Czechoslovakia um, so um, the it's uh, and I'm not sure I'm not sure Putin would go so far to say that you know that um, uh, say that part of Romania is actually is actually belongs to Russia. I'm not um, is part of this Eastern Slavic family. I'm I'm I, I'm not sure. It's possible that um, it's possible that he does. But the but the the the, the point the point is that um, it's uh, it's it's a very complex picture. But I think also aside from the historical argument, there are clear geo, ge- geopolitical kind of strategic reasons for wanting Ukraine. And Russia is a, a huge country, a, a, a huge portion of w- which is is on uh, an enormous, the world's largest plain, and 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 Ukraine is part of that plain. So um, and it's at the center of Europe. I mean, its location is 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 incredibly important for for strategic reasons. But that's not to dismiss the the historical reasons. As uh... Now this episode, the, the episode that I'm referring to now will come out after this one because this one will come out today as we are recording. But I was speaking to Professor Louis Siegelbaum and I, I was asking what does Putin necessarily want with Ukraine. I was thought about him wanting to recreate the Soviet Union, but that, he said that that's not necessarily the case that... Uh, he doesn't necessarily... Because he blamed in his speech Lenin for... This, for the Ukraine and for creating Ukraine. So, what is his end game? What does he want with? What does what does he really want to want here? Because a lot of people say he wants to recreate the Soviet Union, but it's not necessarily true. But what is what is your thoughts here? Yeah, here here I would agree with Louis Siegelbaum. I I don't think it's about recreating the Soviet the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union. Um, was structured on nominally uh, uh, nationalist principles. There were these republics that had uh, ostensibly the right to self-determination, but they didn't have the right to self-determination. The Soviet Union was based on all sorts of other principles, in- including um, extremely, um, extremely limited uh, uh, private property. Almost um, that's that's a, a, a kind of different story. That 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 Putin uh, does not want to recreate. Um, but what the Soviet Union did have at certain, um, and, and particularly, um, and this became particularly true under Stalin, it became a very strong state uh, that over time uh, grew in size. So I talked about the expansion um, in 1939, and then again, in a kind of confirmation um, and further extension at the end of the Second World War. Um, this, I think, Putin is is, uh, is attached to, and and people around him are attached to, and many Russians um, are are attached to too. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that is this idea of uh, Russia being a strong state that is also tied um, to empire. Um, and how exactly uh, Putin and people around him and, 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 and others might conceive of what that strong Russian state might look like, that, that is an a, in open, in open question. Um, that, that some people have, have um, uh, uh, good answers to much better than, than an answer that, that I could provide. But I, I don't think, I mean, there are, there, are, there are roots here in the Soviet experience, but I don't think that this is a, 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 a recreation of the Soviet, uh, of the Soviet Union, uh, the Russian Empire. As we know, it did, uh, he was an ex-KGB officer and that he called the fall of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical failure of all time, if, I believe, if I'm quoting this right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a statement that's made, but, it, um, uh, but, but maybe we should focus on the geopolitical aspect mm-hmm. of it and less on the Soviet aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, um, what it led to was the collapse of... Uh, of a Russian, uh, of a state that he saw as, uh, in part, uh, perhaps in large part, Russian. It led to the collapse of, uh, it led to uh, Ukraine being independent. It led to Kazakhstan being independent. And I mentioned these two countries and it led to Belarus being independent. Um, And I mentioned those cases because those are cases where there are um, large uh, Russian uh, 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 minorities, or in some cases, uh, entire populations that Putin considers to be very close, not, that include not only uh, 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 ethnic Russians, but also entire populations that Putin considers to be very close uh, to Russia. Uh, so um, it's uh, it's that it's that kind of geopolitical fragmentation that, that I that I would focus on and if you speak but if you speak to especially in the eastern countries that borders to Russia like I think Estonia and Poland they are not very friendly to Russia considering they did not have a good time they did not look at it as a good time to you know to put it in those words to be under under Soviet Union uh yeah, and the and the, and the, the the I'm sorry. Was was there a question at the end? Uh, no, uh, not really. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to point it out. So then, before we move on, though, I would I would want to turn my attention to Asia and the Chinese Russian relationship and the the alliance going on there. Because as we see, they seem to have close allies. But is it more or less a that kind of like Japan and Germany where? as an alliance with the Chinese and Russian alliance going on, or is there something more here? Like, I mean, I was talking militarily as well, or what, what to considering that China did, and Soviet Union did not go necessarily along very well in historical, but since they're both communist, but had different communist ideologies, but was, is this an unlikely, was this an unlikely alliance, or is what to have more between China and Russia, that's, that means that means die. 
Uh, I should be careful in talking about the Russian-China relationship because it's not something that I that I know a, a lot about. But the um, there have been some in, there have been some interesting uh, discussions about how um, the Russian-China relationship may not be as close as we think it is. Uh, I mean, f- first of all, the, it, there's an incredible asymmetry uh, when you speak about the, the 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 power of China and the power of Russia, mm. particularly economically. So the Russian economy is a fraction of the size of the of the Chinese economy. Uh, so arguments, the, the arguments or the interpretation that Russia and China are coming together can also be, uh, I mean, that interpretation can be presented as that Russia is becoming an extremely subordinate player in a, uh, in a uh, some kind of collaboration with China. This, the, the second point would be that um, there's now discussion about how China may, um, and, uh, in, and here I'm just repeating things that I've, that I've read, um, that China may be hesitant in supporting Russia too much because of the threat of secondary sanctions. And as, as we're seeing in when, when you voted the your, you you in UN a few weeks ago, I believe. I, I don't forget the, forgot the case. I think it was about peace talk agreements that China did not vote on Russia's side. Which was that surprising, or was that kind of expected? Uh, I'm sorry. Can you can you repeat that? I didn't hear. One one a few weeks ago, the UN. I I I, I believe it was the UN who who was voting for this for the peace talk and peace. Of course, Russia vetoed against it, but China devoted neutral. Was this surprising or was it expected? No, I think that from what I understand, um, and again, I can only say so much about uh, about the, the China the China aspect of this. But from what I understand, that was quite expected. So let's go back to the Ukraine. And right before the start, war start, as we know, well, so I'm going to try to say his name right. Volodymyr Zelensky mm-hmm. tried to apply for NATO membership, and he tried to apply for help desperately help for Europe, which has much has been much needed. For so, how come it wasn't able to join NATO? And what what is the criteria for joining a NATO if you if you wish to do so? So, there was a lot of discussion right in the in the weeks running up weeks months uh, leading up to the war about how uh, the NATO issue is a um, well. There was some discussion or some inter- some some statements that this war is really about nothing because or if the war happens, it will. So be it's basically about- like a Seinfeld episode. I'm sorry. So it's basically like a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. The but yeah. So it's about it's about nothing. Why is it about nothing? Because the, the NATO is never going to accept Ukraine anytime soon, uh, and Russia knows that NATO is never going to accept Ukraine anytime soon. Why is why is NATO not going to accept Ukraine anytime soon? Because uh, because there is a conflict in Ukraine at present. And as far as I understand, that's, that's just one reason. 
uh, or not at present, but I'm sort of before before uh, before late February. Um, that uh, you, Ukraine, Ukraine can't be um, admitted for um, for that reason. That's just one reason. However, I, I actually just just to just to return to um, this idea that this is a conflict about nothing because Ukraine, um, everybody on both everybody knows that Ukraine isn't going to become part of NATO. I, I don't think that's quite. I don't think that interpretation is quite right because sure, Ukraine might not, it won't become part of NATO. Um, uh, but at the same time, Ukraine is gradually, um, and we're seeing this uh, play out, Ukraine um, since 2014 has been gradually strengthening its military. And, um, and it's been dr- gradually strengthening, strengthening its military because it's been supported by, uh, um, by Western powers. And I and I think that uh, uh, I, Putin is, recognizes this um, that to some extent I mean he hasn't recognized the extent of it evidently but he recognizes that you, that Ukraine is getting stronger militarily he has for a long time as we've already talked about and there's continuity here he has for a long time denied the uh, legitimacy of uh, the Ukrainian state uh, in in a particular form. And uh, and and has and uh, and certainly um, doesn't want Ukraine then to become stronger uh, militarily. And there's a particular uh, conjunction, a number of things going on at the same time right now that make it uh, that make it that in his eyes made it an opportune time uh, to uh, bring Ukraine back into uh, his his fold. So is is this Zelensky's application for EU more realistic, or is that out of the picture as well? That I'm that I'm really not sure. I don't I don't know enough about about what's required to 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 join um, the the European Union. Um, my I mean my 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 hunch is that corruption uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and the state of the Ukrainian economy. Um, I mean, even bef- you know, in, in terms of long long term trends, would would create an, an, an obstacle to that. But um, but you know, things are very fluid. So let's go back to weeks before the war and the diplomacy. Has what was how come diplomacy failed? Did Putin, has Putin already made up his mind, or was it just stolen from time here? But how Trump diplomacy didn't work out as we followed closely and close, closely the wars, news began to, new, the news channels began to post um, about the, the recent events as diplomacy was unfolding. What do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, so let, let me just, I, I haven't said this yet, um, and I don't think that you mentioned it. So let me just say that, you know, I'm, I'm a historian of modern Russia. And my 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 perspective, um, my uh, and and in, including and um, and I'm a historian of the Soviet Union, so um, so I I, I do um, that that includes um, of course Ukraine, um, and so my perspective on this is really more historical, sort of thinking about long term trends. The diplomacy issue, you know, that's a that's a very specific recent episode. From what I gather, um, from what I've read, it, it, it does seem that there was no real diplomacy. 
in the sense that there was no real effort on the Russian side to find a diplomatic solution. I've been pretty convinced by, by arguments such as the following, that uh, if you want a diplomatic solution, you don't issue uh, public, publicly demands that are politically for the people you're negotiating with complete non-starters. Um, there's, there's um, to, to, make those, to make those demands, that is that Ukraine will never be part of NATO and that NATO needs to pull back from, from um, some of the countries that it's expanded into, uh, into since the fall of the Soviet Union is just, is just politic, it would be a, a politically impossible to agree to it um, given the way that the demands were presented um, for, um, uh, for an American politician. And I'm, of course, you know, talking about Joe Biden. So, I, I mean, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem, um, you know, there was a story, there was a story right after those demands were issued, and then I didn't see it again. And so maybe it turned out that it was kind of apocryphal. Um, but I think the story does capture uh, sort of how, how, how much of a non-starter those, uh, the, that diplomatic effort, um, uh, those demands were and, and the diplomatic process um, was. And the story was that when one, foreign, when one um, employee of the Russian foreign ministry passed on the demands to another employee of the Russian foreign ministry, who was then to pass, that, pass it on to the West, I may be getting the details of the story slightly wrong. Um, uh, that the, the person who received the demands just kind of smirked, uh, knowing that this was not something that was going to go anywhere. And, and while the story might be apocryphal, I think that it does, it does capture a, a larger dynamic. We don't think it is the invasion, which began on the 24th of uh, March now. Uh, February, 24th, February, I believe. Yeah. And, and this was, of course, a shock to the world and waking up the news that Russia has invaded Ukraine and war is now in Europe, which seemed like impossible living in today's age, but it is going on and it has happened. So, Volodymyr Zelensky wanted sanctions before Russia, uh, Russia invaded. Would that have helped that? having the sanctions before the invasion would have, have helped somehow or would it be too little too late? I don't, I don't think that it, I mean, I'm not a sanctions expert, but I don't think it would have helped um, because I don't think, I mean, you have to, you also have to ask what kind of sanctions would have been, would have been, um, would have been implemented on the eve of an invasion. Um, and, and I think that Putin was prepared for a certain, uh, for a certain level of sanctions. I don't think that he was prepared for sanctions against the Russian central bank, um, but I think that he was prepared for a certain level of sanctions. And I think that on the eve of the, of the crisis, uh, of the eve of the invasion, um, I don't think anybody would have, would have talked realistically about sanctioning the Russian central bank on the eve of the, on the eve of the invasion. So I, I I don't I don't I don't think that would have helped. So we not yeah yeah or I don't I just I just don't think yeah I don't think that the sanctions would have helped because a certain a certain package of sanctions were were likely uh, uh, anticipated. So 
it seems at least that that's the way that Russian media, sorry, not Russian media, but Western media seem to portray that Putin more or less like you, kind of like you said, he just laughed it off, kind of because I, as you know, during the Crimean invasion, heavy sanctions were put against Russia, and uh, he just they kind of just came, came out of that in a way, so he's, he's more prepared now, so he kind of just laughed it off in a sense. Yeah, I, I think that... Um, At least that's how Western media kind of portrays it just the, way I, the way I see it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and, and you might want to talk to, to a sanctions person about, about this, but my sense is that when we talk about the sanctions that were implemented uh, in 2014, is that we often, we, we often forget that right as those sanctions or even before those sanctions were being, um, were being implemented, the price of oil fell drastically and the um and the uh it, it's it's a little tough i mean for for me and I, and I, and and again i think this is why you should maybe talk to somebody else about this but it's a it's kind of tough to disentangle um the effect of sanctions from what happened to oil markets uh at around that same time and it seems like um there may be a, there may be an argument to be made about the, about the limited impact um, of sanctions uh, in 2014 uh, and that we kind of, uh, we overstate what they were. We also forget that the sanctions were, were, were um, or some, some, you know, some, of, some observers, certainly not everybody, uh, that this, the sanctions increased, um, became much more serious, not after the annexation of, of Crimea, or even the incursion into the support of, of separate separatists and incursions incursion into the Donbass, but after the after the um, the downing of the airline uh, uh, of the airliner over the Donbass. Um, so uh, that that kind of the sanction the sanctions this is all to say that that's the sanctions picture from 2014 2015 is much is is um, a little a little bit more more more. Uh, complicated, I think. So, what do we see with the invasion current state of the Russian military? Do we expect kind of a blitzkrieg? Because that seemed to be what Putin was hoping for. But has it failed logistically here, or is there is this just the beginning that he has more troops in reserve? Has he seen a colonial prolon of military tanks being stuck in the road? A few, I believe, it was last week. And um, has the has the military invasion failed logistically, or didn't it go as is it going exactly as planned for Putin? Uh, I mean, again, from what I gather from reading people who know much more about this stuff than I do, uh, as as regards to the military and logistics, is that uh, Putin's uh, assumptions uh, in planning the invasion were horribly wrong, uh, and what he when when they went in they went in with um what's called the resguardia which is the russian national guard they went in with what uh amon which is the russian riot police uh, they went in with 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 military as well but they just simply weren't expecting the degree of resistance that mm. that they got which led to uh an enormous um uh, enormous losses. I mean, there, there was an article in the New York Times, um, it was either last night or this morning, uh, that 
the you know U.S. intelligence is is estimating that around seven thousand um, Russian soldiers have 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 uh, have died, um, including three generals. Uh, so I mean, they clearly I mean the the assumptions were clearly enormously uh, problematic. Um, many people. Um, uh, saw that from, you know, beginning or, you know, months before the invasion pre- predicted that one, one person who was really good on that was Michael Kaufman um, at CNA in, in the United States, uh, in Washington, DC. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but what's going to happen going forward? Um, uh, um, that that's really, that's really difficult to say. And, um, and it, I mean, it does seem like, um, it, it does seem with, with that question that Putin is willing to, uh, and the people around him are, are, are willing to uh, inflict enormous uh, uh, cost on, on, uh, and loss of life on, on the Ukrainian civilian population in order to achieve certain goals. So what, what that's bringing me to the next point, which is what has the Western support for Ukraine and the Ukrainian resistance meant for the invasion? What has Western support meant, meant for the invasion? Yeah, what is for, for Western support for Volodymyr Zelensky and what's sending new weapons from Germany and the resistance? What has this meant against it for the invasion? Um, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, it's a little unclear to me to, um, and I, I, I mean, a military person would obviously be much, much better, better equipped to answer this. Um, but it's on, I mean, it's on, it's unclear to me how, how much, uh, militarily things have changed. That is how much, how much, uh, how many resources have been able to get into the country since everything began, um. That's, I think that's a that's a that's a question um, for somebody for, for, for somebody else. But right. the but it does seem like um, there's an enormous amount of political will uh, to uh, continue to uh, support uh, Ukraine uh, uh, mili- uh, militarily uh, and to increase um, uh, support for Ukraine militarily. Um, so. Uh, um, that has, um, yeah, I mean that that whether that's a change, whether that's a change. I mean, uh, implementing that is a change. Whether it's something that, um, I mean, Putin likely didn't didn't anticipate it um, because he anticipated a very quick a quick victory. But um, I, I'm I think many people in the West um, uh, anticipated it. Yeah, uh, so as we mentioned sanctions a little bit, but I want to ask you, with the economic sanctions on Russian airlines and Russian, and the and the Russians have been allowed to participate in the, in the sporting events or front, no, they weren't free or, or, or businesses are not allowed to operate in Europe anymore. And obviously gas and oil is not allowed to be sent into Europe is, with these economic sanctions, which seem to already been starting to, affect, to have an effect on the normal civilization, population of Russia, 
is this gonna and I, I predict and I'm and I'm right in predicting that this is gonna send Russia into the 1920s Germany and that we might the people already compared him kind of to Hitler, but do can we see with the with the sanctions that fascism might rise in Russia and that we will might see another Adolf Hitler rise? Well, <laughs> The, the the historical the historical analogy aside, I, there's a there's certainly a move in 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 the direction of extreme repression, uh, and uh, you may know there was Putin gave a speech yesterday uh, where he talked about uh, traitors and. Uh, in, in, in Russian, um, uh, uh, so kind of like, like uh, I guess it would be something like scum. Um, and he talked about the Samai Chishenya or the self-cleansing um, or self-purging of Russian society, uh, of people who live their lives uh, mentally uh, in the West. Uh, and that's you know, very scary uh, language. Um, uh, and things are, are clearly moving in a, in a, in a really uh, scary uh, direction. Um, I'm, I'm historical, historical periods are so different. I'm, I'm hesitant to make the, make the, the, the comparison to, I'm very hesitant to make the comparison to Hitler, but um, you know, you don't need, you, you don't need Nazi Germany to have a country where, you know, terrible things happen. Um, maybe not on the level of, um, uh, uh, not on the level of, you know, of uh, millions of millions of people um, exterminated, um, but you can still have um, you know terrible things happen uh, without um, uh, without the with, without the without the parallel to Hitler. But that that said, I mean there are clear there are very scary indications that um, there might be some sort of um, affinity uh, uh, in Russia with. Um, at least some, uh, you know, uh, Nazi Nazi-like sentiments. I mean, that Z that is the symbol um, that has become the symbol um, for uh, the invasion, or or what Putin and uh, Russian uh, media call the military operation, um, is. Uh, uh, you know, has a certain resemblance to to Nazi to Nazi uh, uh, symbols, so that's quite scary. And it seemed to me that, especially in life, again, I want to use an historical analogy where in Italy and Spain and in Germany, and now that we see Russia kind of getting there, is it seemed to me that that's where kind of the situation where fascism breeds that that's kind of where. It will evolve, so that's the kind of countries that the fascism kind of evolves. Yeah, I mean, you 
so you, I mean, you have a particular context with where you feel like you're encircled, where your economy is, is really struggling, but it also requires, I mean, fascism also requires um, a number of other things. Um, uh, for example, for example, um, a great deal, if not total mobilization, mobilization of the, of, of the, of the population, um, uh, a desire to uh, create a new man, um, a, uh, uh, there are, and there, the, I don't, I'm, I don't know how comfortable I am going into um, a, a detailed def, def, academic definition of fascism. Um, but there are, I mean, my, my larger point would be that there can be something quite scary, uh, quite repressive, quite enormously um, catastrophic. Uh, for the Ukraine, for Ukraine, uh, for for Russia as well, w- without uh, Russia becoming a textbook example of fascism, or perhaps a new ideology will arise as well. For yeah, Alina. yeah, yeah. It's possible. It's possible. I mean, it it, se- it seems it seems to me that one of the things that has enabled uh, that has enabled Putin is uh, uh, a something that's a long-term trend in Russian history. And that is, um, and it's something that historians quite recently haven't talked that much about. Um, uh, and uh, if you like, I can, I, I can talk about that. Yeah, but that, please. But that's, but that's atomization of Russian society. Um, that is the extent to which, the extent to which uh, there are not very strong horizontal bonds Um, in Russian society. There are bonds, um, very strong bonds uh, within family. There are strong sort of informal uh, circles with, uh, uh, that, are, that are tied together horizontally. Um, but that, um, the, 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 lack of the, the lack of those bonds creates, it enables a great deal of, um, it enables um, autocracy. And um, uh, there's this longer term trend where what you have is not necessarily a very strong Russian state or Soviet state. That is, it works kind of in a, in a rickety way but it works incredibly well uh, because, of the la- because of the atomization or the lack of horizontal bonds, not their complete absence, but because there, um, there aren't very many of them. So, um, uh, 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 and, and I, think that, I, think, I think that dynamic is important and it also, um, It also may, and I, you know, I haven't thought that much about this, but you know, I'll just just sort of throw an idea out there. It may um, it may complicate perhaps the the fascism argument because what you have if you ha- it be, for the Russian state to be really strong, what you need in part, or what mm, not what you need, but a kind of a condition of that historically is a lot of people who are quite removed, uh, uh, are, are quite removed and not involved politically. Um, so, uh, and, and, and that means that they're not mobilized uh, behind the state. 
in the in the way that uh, that that fat that fascism might 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 require, um, if if that if that's clear. Yeah, and I want to end before we before we leave here with yeah. one last question and. I think uh, the answers are clear already for what if you listen to this conversation. But at the beginning of the episode, people fear that he would, like I said, but people fear that he would recreate the Soviet Union and that they want to attack more NATO, more countries, and even attack a NATO country. But with the failure of this military invasion logistically, is uh, is there any chance for World War Three now, considering? So do you think Putin could have, even handle a World War III with, with a failure of logistics and failure of the military innovation? And it's not a failure yet necessarily, but it's not likely. And I have one question as well after this. Yeah, that's fine. That's sure. Um, uh, I mean, the, the, the situation is very is I've said this several times. I mean, it's, it, it, it's really scary because any, um, uh, uh, because Putin is clearly on his heels uh, and uh, the West clearly wants to do everything that it can to help Ukraine and Ukraine wants to do everything that it can to help itself. Um, and, uh, and so there's this background of, uh, or not even background, the foreground of obviously enormous, enormous tension. And in, in, in that context, um, you know, something bad, uh, 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 predicted or unpredicted, could happen. If um, we talked earlier about the West continuing to support or increasing support for Ukraine militarily, I mean, what, what happens? And there was an article in the Times either yesterday or this morning, the New York Times, um, either yesterday or this morning about this. I mean, what, what happens if... Um, uh, if Poland is trying to bring military equipment into into Ukraine, which requires that that um, uh, they at least come up to the border, and that uh, and that military equipment is bombed, and you know Poles who are member a member of NATO um, are killed, what happens after that? Um, so th- there are these, you know, there it, it's a it's a really it's it's a really frightening uh, situation. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll stop there. I mean, people can learn a lot more about this by, 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 by simply reading uh, recent, uh, recent articles that talk about this stuff in, in, um, in greater detail. So, um, uh, yeah, there was a second part. Yeah, I was going to ask this before this, but... Putin last week, in the last week or two weeks ago, put nuclear weapons on high alert. But should we read too much into this, or should we should we be worried? Because as far as I understood, he had just three. I don't remember the options exactly, but he had he had been just had like low, medium, and high alert. In the way I understood this, so should we read too much into nuclear weapons being on high alert, and would he risk? nuclear annihilation in this war um i mean i to, to start with the I mean, start with the beginning the why the why he made this statement about the 
nuclear weapons and why the the Belarusian Russian military um, exercises as well. And I'm sort of adding here involved a kind of nu- a, nu- a nuclear component, from what I understand. I mean, this is about just this is about signal signaling and and signaling very effectively that that uh, NATO should not get involved, and um, uh, uh, because if NATO gets gets involved, uh, for example, by uh, implementing a no-fly zone, um, that uh, what it's signaling is that uh, is that Russia may use uh, nuclear uh, weapons. I mean, whether I, I have no way of knowing, and I uh, of whether that would that would actually happen. But the trouble is, is that do you you know do you really want to risk it? Um, and in that sense, I mean, what he's doing strategically. Uh, is um, uh, m- makes a certain amount of sense, and I and I don't think that um, that that the United States um, and NATO would would risk it. It's just, I mean, it's just such an enormous uh, uh, gamble. And here I'm talking, like for example, with a with a no fly zone. Um, um, so, um, yeah. Thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Um, do you, before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote on the social media where people might find you if you had any question? Um, no, I have no, not, not nothing that nothing that I want to promote. I just can I just clarify one small yeah. point that I made earlier. Um, and that's about uh, that's about when I was talking um, when you asked the question about the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, is he trying to uh, recreate the Soviet Union? Um, and uh, and then I was talking a little bit about Russians who were abroad, um, Russians who after the after the collapse of the Soviet Union found themselves either in Kazakhstan or uh, Ukraine. Just just kind of flesh flesh out that point. The um, there was a piece in. Uh, there, there was an interview um, that I read the other day with uh, Timoth- Timothy Snyder, who is a Yale historian. And he has written a great deal about Ukraine and Poland uh, and, and Belarus. And a point that he made was that uh, Russia needs Ukraine or Putin's Russia needs Ukraine because Putin's Russia doesn't quite know what it is. It can't just be Putin's Russia, because Putin's Russia is um, this kind of um, corrupt uh, entity where, um, you know, by, def- by, by definition, by being corrupt, the rule of law is not something that's followed. And so it kind of needs Ukraine to make, make, make up for that. Um, uh, and perhaps it, it, it needs uh, other territories where there are... Uh, uh, there are um, ethnic Russians, um, and not only ethnic Russians, but um, Ukrainians and so on. You know, I I, I would take that that point a a, a, a little bit further and, and say that it's not so much what's happening with Ukraine is not so much that Russia doesn't have anything and it needs Ukraine. This is what Russia is, in a sense. That is. Uh, uh, the because given um, uh, there are a number of things in Russian Russian history that that lead to this, 
But uh, it's very hard for Russia to uh, understand where nation and where nation ends uh, and empire starts. That is, the boundary is very, very blurry because the because the because Russia was part of a, a of an empire and then was part of the Soviet Union, and and occupy and what we now call ethnic Russians um, occupied a very peculiar place uh, in both of those uh, uh, in both of those entities, um, the the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. One yeah. can argue that it is an empire already transitioning the size, share size of Russia. Today, today. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's still, it's still, um, the, the, the problem, the problem exists even within the boundaries of contemporary, the, the contemporary Russian Federation, uh, which is a, uh, which is a multinational state. And it's recognized, you know, it's a, it, it's a, it's a federation. There are particular ethnic groups that have it. Um, uh, Tatars, for example, um, that have autonomy within within the Russian state. Thank you so much for coming. And like you said in the beginning, if there's any disinformation here, I want to apologize because as the war is still ongoing, and information may occur that we do not know yet after this episode is being released. So I want to say that in advance, if there's any disinformation, I want to apologize. This is currently a current event. So Please take that in mind as you listen to this episode or have listened to this episode. I want to bear that in mind. And my name is Alan. This has been the cover of the Ukraine crisis or the Ukrainian war, if you will. You can find us on social media on WellBathH12 on Instagram. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts. Please like, share, and subscribe. If you are an Apple podcast, consider writing us a review. That would help us a lot. My name is Alan, and then it's been a pleasure to have you listen to this podcast and to have you on, Professor Anatoly Pinsky. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.